it's not that, you know, AI is uniquely dangerous in this respect or uniquely likely to lead to, you know, sort of uh, um, harmful, unbridled competition, but it's, you know, it's more that we have already gone through the lessons uh, of other technologies and, you know, uh, with the case of cars, it took decades of like gradually ratcheting up standards around fuel efficiency and seat belts and airbags and so forth. Um, and, we, and we're in the early stages of that process for AI. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Miles researches the societal impacts of artificial intelligence and how to make sure they go well. In 2018, he joined OpenAI as a research scientist on the policy team. Previously, he was a research fellow at the University of Oxford's Future for Humanity Institute and served as a member of Axon AI's Policy Technology Ethics Board. I'm super excited to talk to him. So I was looking at your background, it seemed like you did some, you, you had kind of an interesting path into uh, AI policy, right? Mm-hmm. But were you originally working on kind of like energy and climate issues? Is, do I have that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, in undergrad in DC, and then for a little while after, um, after I graduated, I was working at Department of Energy and other sort of like think tanks and uh, stuff in the in the broad area of energy and climate policy. And um, I, you know, ended up sort of wanting to go to grad school because I wanted to do more research and less sort of, you know, administrative and sort of support for, um, uh, you know, uh, like sort of boss support type stuff. I was like a special assistant was my role. And um, and, you know, it, it was, I learned a ton from being in government and working on something uh, that, you know, I had, that, that was super hot at the time, like energy and climate policy was a big, big deal. People are talking about it way more than, you know, AI or anything like that back in the day. And um, it was super enlightening. Um, but I also, you know, eventually concluded that um, while energy was important, there wasn't as much sort of to be done in terms of research uh, to move things forward. And AI was this uh, sort of more fresh, you know, you know, green field in terms of research and that it wasn't just a political problem of like getting getting the right thing to happen, uh, which I think is arguably the case with uh, energy and climate change now where, you know, we have some good understanding of the policy issues, not everything, but we have a decent understanding of what needs to be done. And it's uh, largely a matter of political will, whereas in AI, it's not even clear like what we want and what we you know, what, what should be done, let alone, you know, how to get the political will. So that felt like a more exciting opportunity for impact on the research side. I'm curious, um, you know, having kind of thought deeply about both, um, I guess, like, does, which do you think is more of a threat to the future of humanity, uh, climate change or, or AI? Which, which, which worries you more? Ooh, I definitely, in the near term, I don't think, you know, AI is going to sort of, you know, end the human race or anything like that. Um, you know, it's still, you know, at relatively early stage, but we do need to think about the long-term risks of, uh, of you know, technologies as they're developed, whereas uh, energy is something that's, you know, a, a clear and present danger right now. Um, and I'm hopeful that AI will actually help with addressing it. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, energy is sort of a, it's a sort of known long-term time uh, timescale issue where we know that there's a bunch of things that need to change in order to, you know, get on a good trajectory, whereas AI is sort of, you know, we know that we're not in sort of imminent danger of like all jobs being automated or, you know, uh, killer AI taking over the world or something, but we see these sort of trends and they're more uncertain in, you know, how quickly they'll develop. So I think uh, we're actually, you know, despite all the uncertainties with, you know, climate change and, um, you know, energy technology innovation, where we, you know, don't really know what's going to happen in a few decades. We actually have like more reasonable error bars for that than we do for AI, where it's like experts are all over the place in terms of thinking things will be, you know, solved in the near future or taking centuries. And 
Um, I think it's actually harder to be very confident about AI than uh, energy uh, and climate change. Well, I guess, um, do you, where do you like kind of, like when you say sort of like media or near term, medium term, do you feel like there's like a, like a serious possible issue with AI in the next like say 50 years? Um, I, it's really hard to say. I think we should we should you know try not to be too confident in in you know what uh, you know where the trends are going to go. Like just in the past few years, there's been a lot of technological progress that um, people have found surprising. Like you know very few people were sort of expecting as much progress in uh, things like machine translation and uh, natural language generation as ended up happening. And similarly, things like uh, image recognition have just like you know gone from like okay it's like in the human performance you know ballpark to like okay now it's superhuman superhuman um in some metrics it's not superhuman across the board but you know on sort of well-defined tasks we've made a ton of progress uh will that lead to you know at some point systems that are harder to control or that might uh sort of you know cause unintended uh side effects and you know increasingly large um, uh, sort of context where they're deployed, I think it's hard to say. I think we should think of this as something that, um, you know, where the stakes are going to rise both of the, as the capabilities increase and also as the sort of use cases grow. So um, even if AI sort of doesn't progress much in terms of uh, capabilities, it will, it, it seems like there's economic pressure and other sorts of uh, reasons why it's going to be deployed in more contexts. And as those sort of contexts get more dangerous, like the stakes are going to rise. So we're already seeing AI applied for uh, things like, um, you know, predict predictive policing and face recognition and uh, of, uh, things that are, you know, highly sensitive and also things like search engines and recommendation systems that are actually, you know, materially affecting what information people get and, you know, what uh, products they and services they it's definitely, you know, the sort of thing that, um, you know, the stakes are getting, are high and getting higher, but, um, I, you know, it's hard to say, you know, what the sort of end point of that evolution will be. And I think the key is that we, I think the key is to sort of think ahead and be, be at least a few, a few years ahead in terms of what sorts of problems we're anticipating so that we're not caught off guard. So things like, uh, you know, misuse of AI systems, I think we should not sort of wait until the risks have materialize, but instead, you know, think about what, what can we do at the design phase to make these uh, problems less severe? Can we develop detection systems, those sorts of things? So um, I don't think it's, there's any sort of like inevitable uh, risk. I think it's more like what is the, you know, how prepared are we relative to the capabilities and the deployment that uh, is coming? Do you think there's something, um, I feel like a lot of these things that I hear about sort of AI it seems like you could almost substitute the word like technology for AI and you'd kind of come to the same um, conclusions. Like, do, do you feel like there's something special about AI that like requires sort of um, more vigilance or, or different kinds of um, ethical concerns? Yeah, I think it starts to get a bit, um, you know, when there's more uncertainty and more sort of variation in the kinds of actions that systems can take, as opposed to just being, you know, sort of deterministic code that does the same thing over and over, as opposed to dealing with uncertain inputs and, you know, potentially a shifting distribution of inputs. I think the risks can uh, grow when you're sort of moving from software to AI, but definitely there are all sorts of systems in society that are very complex already, you know, even before... So I think, you know, the number of lines of code and, um, you know, sort of passenger aircraft are, you know, it's the same and, you know, it's like super complex systems. So it's not like AI is suddenly going to, um, you know, lead to this new complexity, but rather there are sort of elements of AI such as, um, you know, sort of processing of, of uh, you know, a, a wide range of inputs, 
and potentially making uh, making decisions that um, you know previous software systems were not entrusted to do because we lacked you know sort of perceptual input and uh, you know the manipulation outputs. So things like you know robots, for example, there are applications of AI that were just you know not previous not possible um, you know if you don't have that technology. So. It's, you know, I, I wouldn't draw a clean line between them. I see, you know, AI as sort of like an extension of information technology and, and software and, you know, going back even further, things like electricity. And, you know, it's unclear whether that like cognitive element, like the sort of sense in which AI is about, you know, thinking as opposed to just, um, you know, following sort of rules blindly. And, um, you know, is that actually a significant element that introduces, you know, a lot of risk? I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, whether, whether we should be sort of AI um, sort of um, exceptionalists, like treating AI like an exception or just treating it as part of the spectrum of technology. Um, I think there are pros and cons of both because you don't want to, um, you don't want to sort of ignore the, the growing capabilities in cases where AI can do things that previous technologies couldn't do. And I think we're seeing lots of cases of, you know, just products that would never have existed prior to uh, the current wave of AI, um, but we also don't want to sort of be hysterical and over overemphasize the novelty when there are, um, you know, lots of lots of technologies that have big impacts on people. So, do you have like, um, I guess, do you have like an agenda of like a, some types of change that you want to like enact in the world at this point, or are you still sort of trying to like figure out like what you're trying to get folks to do? Uh, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, the <laughs> overall sort of agenda, but I think some of the some of the key components um, are sort of cooperation between AI developers, I think is is super essential in order to figure out, um, you know, what the right practices should be and uh, to hold one another accountable. And, um, you know, so for example, I did some work with Amanda Askell and uh, Jillian Hadfield in a paper last year that um, talks about the need for cooperation in order to avoid a race to the bottom between AI developers. Um, and so that's that. So insofar as you know, I have an agenda on that issue. It's avoiding you know races to the bottom and avoiding. Wait, what would that mean? A, what would a race to the bottom mean in uh, yeah. in this context? Yeah. So like driverless cars is perhaps the most clear cut case where um, there's you know there's an incentive to be safe, but there's also an incentive to get products to market. And I think there uh, and you know in, in cases where uh, systems are sort of deployed um, in a way that's premature in some respect, like not taking into account that there could be daywalkers, for example. I think that's a case uh, where um, yeah there was a you know design element of the system that was not super thought through. Um, and if you have, you know, people who are sort of overlooking these things and uh, cutting corners in, in a rush to get products to market, I think that could cause harm for you know, the whole ecosystem, not just causing, you know, individual crashes, but uh, there are cases where sort of, you know, people following their own individual self-interest to sort of get, get things out there faster uh, could lead them to, um, you know, cause harm and ultimately make the whole sector uh, worse off. So that's why we need sort of regulations and other, uh, as well as, you know, informal norms in the AI community that put things like safety and security and privacy and so forth first so that there's some guardrails, you know, so there's competition, but within certain guardrails is, uh, you know, unbridled competition, I think, could lead to um, sort of lowering of the standards and, you know, in, in an effort to sort of, you know, up, you know, one up one another. Do you mean like unbridled competition in terms of uh, like researchers or is that what you mean in this context or? or oh, so or? I, I specifically mean in terms of uh, uh, sort of products going to market. So if there's sort of no standards for say, you know, driverless car safety. Fortunately, I don't think there are any countries that have no, no standards. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, 
policymakers are aware of this need to impose some sort of guardrail. But um, it, you know, if, if there's a world in which the, those standards are insufficient, and you know, there's a need for, uh, and there's insufficient vigilance about you know how safe these systems are, uh, then there's you know not going to be sufficient pressure to uh, make sure that the the sector as a whole uh, moves in the right direction long term. And so, it, so it's sort of the trade-off between individual interests and you know collective interests as well as like short and long term that I think. Uh, could go awry, and I, that's why things like, like ethical principles that keep people thinking about the long term and sort of clarify what's expected of different actors, and also you know regulations that sort of impose some you know some floor on what the level of uh, you know level of safety or security should be for given systems are necessary in order to prevent it just from being you know wild west. So when I say unbridled competition, I just mean like in the actual you know deployment side of of you know there, there needs to be some sort of process for making sure that, uh, you know, unsafe systems are deployed. And I guess like, is it, so like compare maybe like AI, like autonomous vehicles to just like car, the, the car industry, right? Like the car industry has like all kinds of like safety regulations that make sense. And like, do you feel that like AI needs some sort of different kind of um, cooperation than, than other industries maybe need? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it needs anything different. I think it just needs to catch up to where other sectors are. So, uh, you know, there's a whole history of like nu nuclear power plants. You know, you know, responsibly disclosing an incident in order for others to sort of learn from it. And similarly, there's a whole history of like you know airplane crash investigations and regulations and so forth. So it's not that driverless cars or or AI generally is this sort of you know new scary thing. It's more that we're, we need to apply the same sort of, uh, you know, same sort of approach as we have done in other technologies. So, you know, going back to your question earlier about sort of AI versus other technologies, I think this is a case where I see them as very similar. So it's not that, you know, AI is uniquely dangerous in this respect or uniquely likely to lead to, you know, sort of uh, um, harmful unbridled competition, but it's, you know, it's more that we have already gone through the lessons uh, of other technologies and, you know, uh, with the case of cars, it took decades of like gradually ratcheting up standards around fuel efficiency and seat belts and airbags and so forth. Um, and we and we're in the early stages of that process for AI. Interesting. Is there like an industry that where you think that's doing like particularly well on this or like particularly badly? Good question. I think there. I think you know, driverless cars is not like you know. To be clear, is not like unambiguously bad thing. I think there's a ton of great work on on figuring out how to, to make you know driverless cars safe, and there is you know some sort of informal cooperation going on among um among those developers. Though it's like kind of tricky, and you know, there's it, uh, due to things like antitrust laws, you know, that prevent you know too much coordination. It's not clear exactly you know how how much is happening and how much can happen. Um, other technologies, so I, I think, you know, let's see, good and bad. Um, I think there's actually been like a ton of really good work on uh, things like um, image recognition and trying to characterize, uh, you know, robustness in that context. So, um, you know, with, with regard to things like interpretability, we're much further along in terms of, you know, interpreting, uh, you know, image classifiers than we are, um, uh, you know, with like language systems, for example. Um, so just like, you know, classifiers generally, I would say, are a lot like the more mature end of the spectrum and that we have, you know, clear uh, sort of metrics for performance and there's a lot of open source models to compare things against. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of documentation of things like biases and, and uh, you know, potential, uh, you know, issues with robustness. 
Um, so I'd say that's not to say that like all classifiers are good or something like that, but I'd say that, you know, if you sort of look across AI, there are areas that are more and less mature in terms of, you know, the, the, um, you know, the rigor of, uh, you know, the rigor that people, uh, you know, are applying. It does seem like, um, I guess it seems to me like AI does kind of come out of more than other industries, maybe kind of comes out of like a research background, or maybe there is like a little bit more of a culture of, um, you know, cooperation, like it does seem sort of notable that so many uh, models that people use in companies kind of come out of like open source projects or, or research papers. So it does seem like there's a fair amount of um, at least like like cooperation on the technology side, like maybe more than you'd actually expect. Um, yeah, there is, yeah. And I, I, if there's an interesting question of, you know, how long that will last and, you know, what, what are the like underlying drivers of that openness? One, one argument for, you know, why, why it might be more open than you might otherwise expect is just that uh, individual AI researchers want to publish stuff and therefore that puts, uh, puts, a, puts pressure on the companies that hire those people to, you know, allow them to publish stuff. Um, and, you know, th I think that's like a very strong incentive and the fact that, you know, AI researchers and engineers are sort of, uh, you know, a scarce resource in the talent market that gives them some influence over what these pol uh, what the policies are at, at these companies. And there's also some, you know, another argument for why, you know, it might be so open is that it can benefit the companies to be open by getting people to use their frameworks and it can make it easier to hire people in the future. But I think, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't sort of, you know, want us to rest on our laurels here. And that's why, for example, in a report that um, uh, my colleagues and I put out recently, um, we talk about the need for uh, more generously supporting academics with computing resources because um, we don't necessarily want to just, you know, assume that, uh, you know, sort of those in industry will continue to, you know, release products and that, you know, forever there will be this sort of pressure from below to, to do these releases because there could also be cases where uh, suddenly there's a huge commercial potential that's identified and, you know, they... Uh, you know, companies sort of close up or at an international level, there's sort of, you know, pressure due to competition with China to sort of, you know, damp down on publishing or something like that. There are all sorts of things that could happen longer term. Um, so I, I would say, you know, it's, I'm glad that there is so much openness and collaboration today, but I think, you know, we, given how much has changed in the last five years, I think we should be thinking about, you know, what are the policies to make sure that it, you know, continues in a good way. You're, you're actually talking about, um, I think, a paper you just recently published, right? The Towards mm -hmm. Trustworthy AI Development. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I had a couple, I had some questions about that. <laughs> Maybe yeah, let's we can jump it. in there. Um, yeah, I thought it was like, and you were actually the, the first author of that paper. So I imagine you did a fair amount of heavy lifting or? Yeah, I was one of five first authors. So it was like oh, super see, collaborative, both like at the whole <laughs> authors list and at the, at the certified level. Got it. Cool. Well, I guess, you know, one thing I thought it was kind of a, um, a provocative uh, title is the, the mechanism for supporting verifiable claims. I thought was just kind of interesting. Um, and I think I kind of agree with the importance of it, but maybe you could sort of say the thinking behind that. Yeah. So the basic idea in the report is that um, AI developers um, are sort of making all sorts of systems and, you know, they want to sell them or they want people to use them. Um, and they sort of make various claims about these systems, like, you know, we did bias analysis or we, you know, they're robust in X, Y, and Z ways. And there's some claims like that that are relatively easy to verify. Like, um, if you're uh, in the case where it's like an open source system, you might be able, uh, if you have sufficient technical expertise to, you know, replicate the results, reproduce a certain 
um, error rate and, and sort of, you know, verify that, you know, these AI developers are telling the truth. But there are other cases where it's not as obvious how to do that. For example, if it's, you know, a very compute intensive system, it might be harder for, you know, academics to scrutinize it. Um, or if there are sort of if there are claims being made about privacy uh, preservation, but it's sort of this new fancy approach to uh, sort of privacy preserving machine learning that you know there isn't a standard way of evaluating it, or it's a new library that hasn't been sort of subject to uh, a lot of scrutiny for bugs. Um, those are cases where it's harder to you know harder to verify the claims made by AI developers. So what we did in this report is try and take a, a very broad you know sort of thirty thousand foot view of like okay what is the problem here and we broke it down into institutions, software, and hardware as the three sort of elements of an AI project that uh, can contribute to um, uh, sort of allowing one's claims to be verified. And then in each of those cases, we zoom into what are the what are the specific interventions that can be made. Like in software, for example, we talk about privacy-preserving machine learning and the need for uh, more standardization and uh, open source libraries around there so that it's, you know, sort of reduce the skill requirement and increase, like, the clarity of uh, how different systems should be compared um, and interpretability, audit trails for safety critical systems, et cetera, um, or, you know, some of the things on the software side and then, you know, as well as things at the, in, at the level of institutions and hardware that could, you know, incrementally, you know, it's not, not going to be solved overnight. We, we sort of don't want to, you know, overclaim, you know, what, we, what we're accomplishing here, but what we try to do is sort of survey what, what are the ways that people can show that they're actually being responsible as opposed to just saying, hey, we're being responsible, we care about safety. How do you actually provide evidence of that? And how are and are there ways in which there are sort of barriers to providing that evidence that we can make progress? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was it was interesting. Um, you actually sort of recommend that the government gives uh, cloud like compute credits to um, academic institutions, right? It, it kind of yeah. struck me because that, that totally makes sense. Or some like, other approach. Yeah. Oh, oh, I I, I kind of thought. Um, I mean, I I actually remember kind of leaving academia to go into industry, and one of the um, I guess one of the the real impetuses for me was um, the the fact that like tech companies just had so much more data that kind of led to like sort of more interesting, um, just more interesting problems. And I, I do feel like when I talk to um, you know my friends at like Facebook or Google, they're they're like they feel kind of more sophisticated in some specific ways, just having like dealt with like you know such like enormous data sets and in a way that I don't think typically gets published. And I feel like OpenAI is kind of like one of the few places that, um, you know, you clearly do does you do like incredibly compute intensive stuff. But I wonder if you actually really deal with the same kind of scale of data sets, and if that might, um, you know, if that if that might just sort of. I feel like there there might be the case that like, you know, a couple of big companies are sort of getting a skill set that doesn't exist anywhere and doesn't really get published. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sense in which, you know, some companies have, uh, you know, this sort of infrastructure in place for generating huge amounts of, you know, labeled or unlabeled data, and that puts them in a strong position to sort of uh, do work in that area. I think it's also, you know, possible to do, uh, you know, sort of cutting edge work with, um, you know, open source data through, um, uh, through sort of existing data sets or scraping and, and sort of building your own data sets. Um, so I, I wouldn't, you know, make it, you know, draw this sort of like hard distinction. But yeah, I, I think there, there are lots of ways in which uh, industry, you know, gives, um, you know, opportunities that aren't necessarily available elsewhere. Um, and that's part of what's driven the, you know, academic 
effects into industry. And, and you know, part of where we're coming from in this report is like, is that a good thing? Do, are there ways that you can balance it? It's slightly easier to sort of say, okay, let's you know balance out the compute side of the equation than you know, the data side of the equation in part because a lot of the data is sort of private and by nature, it's just sort of really hard to um, you know, get that out of, uh, out of these companies in an ethical way. Um, but I, I think, you know, we should also be thinking about data and, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a differentiator between, you know, different sectors. And um, I would also like to see governments, uh, in addition to, you know, com providing compute credits or uh, other, other means of su uh, supporting academics could also be like, you know, building a, building a data center or something like that. Um, also, you know, generating labeled data sets is another thing that government can potentially do because it's not clear that, um, you know, the sort of, the, you know, whatever is easiest to collect, uh, you know, at Google or Facebook or, you know, Twitter or whatever is like inherently the data that we need to solve all the problems in the world. In fact, those data sets by, you know, uh, by default have lots of biases. So I think one potentially exciting area is sort of, you know, government support for data sets that could be used by, um, you know, large numbers of people and that are specifically designed to be less biased in certain respects to have, you know, different distributions of bias. Um, that uh, are sort of, you know, able to, uh, you know, help a wide number of actors. And I think the fact that you can, you know, cheaply copy data is, is like a strong argument for this being something that, you know, governments do. It's like, you know, building a highway or something like that, that, you know, benefits a large number of people. And um, yeah, you can like kind of try and exclude people from the highway and do tolls and stuff, but generally it's public infrastructure. And similarly, you know, producing data sets that can be widely used is another thing to consider. That's kind of a cool idea. I guess I, um... It does seem to me that uh, like data sets have pushed a lot of innovation in 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 uh, in ML. I mean, I I also remember when I was a grad student, just this frustration of like it seemed like the tasks that we worked on were sort of based on the data sets that happened to be available. Although I kind of feel like one of the issues that we had maybe was the um, I mean there there were like sort of um, you know collectives of people coming together to create data sets, but it would create a huge amount of um, you know, kind of bureaucracy in that data collection process because no one person, you know, really owned it. And then I think it would end up being like a much bigger undertaking than it necessarily needed to be. So I, I could definitely see governments kind of having trouble, um, you know, just kind of making decisions like, okay, what are we actually yep. going to, you know, collect here? Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's not clear like what, what to be done. Like, you know, you could also imagine in addition to compute credits, like giving, you know, academics data labeling credits that just, you know, allow them to sort of, um, you know, I go to some, you know, third party service and, and, you know, pay for some amount of data. And, you know, th I think there's probably a role for that in, a, in the same way that there's also a role for sort of, you know, big public data sets that a bunch of people are using for, you know, some general class of problems. So I think, you know, you ideally want to reduce the barriers to entry on, you know, both for generating these big useful data sets, but also for making sure that people have access to more tailored data for their own needs. Hi, we'd love to take a moment to tell you guys about weights and biases. Weights and Biases is a tool that helps you track and visualize every detail of your machine learning models. We help you debug your machine learning models in real time, collaborate easily, and advance the state of the art in machine learning. You can integrate Weights and Biases into your models with just a few lines of code. With hyperparameter sweeps, you can find the best set of hyperparameters for your models automatically. You can also track and compare how many GPU resources your models are using. With one line of code, you can visualize model predictions in form of images, videos, audio, plotly charts, molecular data, segmentation maps, and 3D point clouds. You can save 
everything you need to reproduce your models days, weeks, or even months after training. Finally, with reports, you can make your models come alive. Reports are like blog posts in which your readers can interact with your model metrics and predictions. Reports serve as a centralized repository of metrics, predictions, hyperparameter stride, and accompanying nodes. All of this together gives you a bird's eye view of your machine learning workflow. You can use reports to share your model insights, keep your team on the same page, and collaborate effectively remotely. I'll leave a link in the show notes below to help you get started. And now, let's get back to the episode. I'm curious, just like a little bit jumping around, but um, you know, what do you think about uh, the, it seems like OpenAI has actually been a real driver towards um, you know, using like kind of more and more compute on these different um, challenges kind of makes it hard to reproduce and makes it, um, you know, potentially some environmental impact. Like, do you, do you have any like thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think uh, it's a really good question. And I, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've liked a lot of the um, publications on this topic, like the paper Green AI from uh, some folks at the Allen Institute was a good implementation of this topic. And lots of other people have been calling attention to it. I think uh, in general, my, my view is that, you know, all things being equal, we want, you know, would like to, you know, sort of not uh, use more, um, you know, compute than is needed for, you know, solving a given problem. But there's some ways in which it's not as, you know, not as urgent uh, or as, you know, bad of a problem as it might, you know, at first appear, such as the fact that the sort of pre-training step of like a large you know, generative model, for example, only needs to be done once, and then it can be, you know, fine-tuned uh, relatively cheaply or even used in a zero-shot fashion by, you know, millions or billions of people. Um, so I think, you know, it, it would be sort of strange to look only at the sort of training side and not also the inference side. And uh, I mean, your, your question wasn't about, you know, one or the other specifically, but I would just, you know, flag the, um, you know, the difference between the two in that, you know, say like, you know, Google using BERT for uh, search engine, uh, you know, search result ranking, for example, like presumably almost all of the compute cost there is on the inference side rather than the training side, um, just because, you know, it was originally like, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars or something for the training, and now it's being used at large for billions of users. So uh, that's not to say that it's not an issue in terms of, you know, the environmental impacts, but you also have to look at, you know, the full sort of, you know, chain and, and uh, and think about inference, whereas I think a lot of the attention so far has been on things like, uh, you know, big training runs. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. I mean, I wonder why that that is. I mean, I actually sort of felt like when I, I, I kind of looked into, like, did my sort of, you know, back of the envelope calculations on the whole thing, um, and it seemed to me like, you know, even if you took all the graphics cards that are made and, like, ran them at all times, it wouldn't be near um, the environmental impact of just, like, regular data centers. But I, I guess like the, um, I guess the trend line is certainly like, you know, it's scary, right? Because it's like this exponential growth and, um, you know, volume of usage. And I guess it, maybe it feels like there's sort of a more natural barrier on the inference because it's like, I don't know, why does it feel like that? Maybe because companies are kind of doing it. They probably won't. Um, it's just, I guess it sort of seems like there's some limit to, to the inference, whereas the the compute seems to be the the training seems to be skyrocketing. At least that's my like my impression. Yeah, yeah, and like another um, yeah, I, I think I think that's 
Right, and that you know we haven't really seen many like big models being served uh, in production, and you know generally there's like a lot of you know optimization pressure to like keep keep things limited there. Whereas you know in in like training and research, it's a bit more like everything goes, and you know trying out you know things to see what works. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. Another thing I'd add is that um, you know I, I would also um, try not to like you know cast all of, you know, AI in a sort of broad brush in that, you know, depending on the use case, you could actually be saving energy. Like, uh, I think, you know, uh, like uh, DeepMind and Google's use of uh, DeepRL for controlling data center energy, uh, energy consumption, for example, is a case where um, you're actually able to reduce the net amount of energy used by applying some AI up front. I guess one, one question I asked Jack, and I, I thought his answer was really interesting, I'm kind of curious about yours, is, um, you know, the, the whole thing around kind of not releasing the um, GPT-2, the biggest GPT-2 model. Well, maybe I'll say what, what I thought about it. I didn't even tell Jack this. This is sort of my, my impression. I mean, I, I don't view myself as sort of the expert on this stuff. And I think at, at first I kind of felt like sort of being like openness seems like really, really important to me. Is this like a core value of like, it sort of feels to me like if people are going to do stuff and, and call themselves like open AI, they really should be um, you know, kind of making their work, erring on the side of making their work public. Um, but then I thought, well, you know, it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, they sort of chosen to think about the impact of releasing this and, you know, kind of making like controversial stance here that also I thought, huh, like I wonder, and maybe they're right, it certainly seemed to me at the time like um, a really powerful language model could be used in, in bad ways. And so I think I didn't feel so sure of myself, you know, about what, what mm -hmm. I thought. Um, and then it sort of seemed like, it didn't really matter because like, you know, other models came out like, you know, like a month or two later and like, it almost seemed like the, maybe the most surprising thing is that there weren't more um, applications of such a impressive looking, you know, technology. Um, I don't know why I started. I, I just, that's, that's, that was my thing. I'm, I'm kind of curious from the inside, yeah. like how it felt for you. And then, um, you know, if there were any like lessons learned on it. Yeah, so I mean, from the in inside, we also, you know, felt very unsure what to think. And, and, you know, we tried to sort of at each stage, like, say, you know, clearly, like, well, we don't know how dangerous this is. And, you know, we got this information. And, you know, we're sort of, uh, we were trying to, like, reduce the, you know, shrink the error bars over time in terms of, uh, you know, both, like, beneficial uses and malicious uses. And, um, that's not to say that we eventually, you know, converged on a total, you know, on an overall conclusion of, like, okay, this is, like, definitely good for society. But, you know, we started with the default of openness and, uh, you know, sort of these concerns uh, arose in terms of people building, you know, proofs of concept of, you know, writing re reviews for Amazon, for example, and like that seemed pretty scary and, you know, writing sort of fake news stories seemed pretty scary. Um, and, you know, ultimately what we, you know, sort of ended up doing was taking an incremental approach of sort of releasing, you know, uh, progressively larger versions of the model. And um, obviously, you know, if we could sort of go back in time, we would sort of, you know, take all the insights that we have now and sort of feed that into a, an earlier stage in the process. But um, what we, what, what I think, what we ended up doing, I think was like a reasonable approach in, in the sense of like, you know, you, if, if there's a potential irreversible decision, like releasing a model, it makes sense to be a little bit cautious, you know, before you do it, if there are ways you can gather more information. I think there are ways to get, you can get some information by doing things like human studies, and we, you know, worked with external uh, researchers, you know, run to uh, you know, outputs by people and sort of, you know, statistically study, you know, the differences across the model sizes and that informs some of our uh, decision making. But, but it ultimately, it's really hard to, to sort of answer these questions. Because so many answers about 
about you know the economics of it and you know the motivations of bad actors. So um, I think it's an ongoing issue that you know couldn't really fully resolve last year. Do you feel like you you really got new information that like informed decisions like along the way? Like what what kind of information did you collect, and what what yeah. different information could you have gotten that would have made you make a different choice? Yeah, so just as a concrete example, um, we were like very unsure what the sort of scaling relationship is between you know sort of model size in this you know GPT two you know regime of like 125 uh, million to one, uh, 1.5 billion parameters. We weren't sure what the what the sort of relationship was between model size and convincingness or ability to be uh, you know coherence and uh, you know clarity and so forth. And we had a rough sense that there's this sort of um, you know smooth-ish relationship. You know, as you grow in model size, it takes fewer and fewer tries to get a given result. So, you know, less cherry picking is required, you know, for a given fixed level of uh, sort of performance. Um, and that seemed to be true, but uh, we weren't sure, you know, uh, you know, okay, but, it, you know, we also weren't sure, like, okay, for a given level of cherry picking, what's the level that you can achieve? Um, and what we ultimately found was that there actually wasn't a huge difference between the two uh, largest model sizes. And that was one of the factors that uh, pushed us towards releasing the 1.5 billion uh, model when otherwise, like if there had been more of a gap between the two, then that would have felt like there was more sort of risk in doing that release. And there were also other things happening, like other people releasing models and, you know, we we're able to do some sort of, you know, comparison between them. So we were, you know, trying to, you know, absorb as much information and generate as much information as we can. Um, but yeah, overall, um, yeah, that, that, that's like probably one of the most clear cut cases where like the real, the like diminishing marginal risk as you sort of increase in model size was a reason why we sort of, uh, you know, felt like for, for scientific reproducibility reasons, other reasons, the benefits were sort of outweighing the cons there because there wasn't, you know, much increase in risk, but we also were seeing significantly improved performance across range of, you know, sort of uh, standard NLP benchmark. So it seemed like it was you know, a non-trivial increase in utility from a research perspective and also would allow people to, you know, start grappling with, you know, some of the issues involved in training these, you know, large models, but it also didn't seem to be a huge marginal increase. As, as someone who, you know, who worked on natural language processing a while ago, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I thought that, uh, in my view, the, the GPT-2 results were, like, incredibly impressive. And I think I thought at the time, this is like must have been about a year ago, mm -hmm. um, that the the applications would be enormous and i think actually the the applications have been kind of subtle like I've, I've noticed like you know i've noticed translation systems working a little better than they used to and there was that like crazy um adventure game <laughs> that uh <laughs> that i played and you know it's like kind of fun yeah um yeah and i've seen i've seen like people like suggesting um plausible domain names you know for your your business and you know we see i mean we see um, on our website, you know, we see a lot of models come through. And so, you know, we do see people, you know, using the technology, but mm -hmm. I don't think that like, um, you know, my mother has like noticed a difference in, in her world. Um, maybe, maybe that's not surprising in retrospect, but it's, it's, it's funny how it's like, it seems like there's this huge leap in, and, and I feel like in the vision stuff, we maybe feel it a little more like, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, face recognition is kind of, it feels like a little more, you know, ubiquitous to me and scary. And at least I notice in my camera, it, like somehow finds, you know, people's faces and things like that that definitely couldn't do a few years ago. I'm not sure. What, yeah. do, you, what do you think about this? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I tend to, you know, sort of think in terms of, uh, you know, general purpose technologies that, you know, could be misused or could be used for beneficial things. So I basically say the same thing, you know, that I was saying about 
um, the risk. So uh, it's you know it's we have some information about you know the fact that you can produce coherent text in some contexts, and that seems like it could be used for lots of you know commercial and creative applications, and also could be used for some malicious applications. But it, we might just not be at the level of performance for either of those domains where it sort of is a straightforward replacement of. Uh, you know, what people were already doing. So I think we'll get there eventually and that language models will continue to proliferate to a bunch of different applications and including, you know, on the edge and in the cloud and all sorts of, you know, contexts. Um, but I think, you know, there, there, you know, a few things need to happen. There needs to be more reliability and uh, sort of higher, um, you know, higher, uh, higher performance compared to humans on some, some tasks where it's just not, not going to make sense to replace when it's, you know, uh, to replace a uh, human or augment a human if it hasn't yet reached that level of performance. And generally, um, I think we also need to figure out what the right workflows and, you know, ways of leveraging these systems look like. Because I don't think it's just, you know, replace a human with a language model. I think that's, you know, one of the sort of more, you know, naive, uh, you know, sort of uses that you can do, but that depends on a very high level of performance and, you know, the, the right kind of use case where um, you don't need sort of online monitoring. But I think there's also other cases like uh, sort of writing assistant where uh, the fact that it's not 100% reliable is not, you know, a game is not sort of a deal breaker. Um, but if you're able to sort of get humans in the loop to sort of provide feedback on these systems and sort of choose among a few potential outputs, like both for, you know, beneficial and malicious purposes, I think that could be a game changer. So I think we'll see further progress both on the technology and people finding better ways to use it. Interesting. Does, does OpenAI, like, do, do, do you sort of, like, continue to, like, push things forward? Or are you sort of like, okay, we, like, made this model, like, we're, we're good? Like, how, how does uh, yeah. OpenAI think about that? Yeah, we're, we're still continuing to push things forward and, um, uh, you know, both in terms of, uh, you know, trying to understand these models better, like the ones we've already built, and also trying to push further in terms of uh, improving performance. So here's another question that I always have about OpenAI, if you don't mind. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, I think it's, um, OpenAI has a, what's OpenAI's mission? Like, like ethical AI, something like that, right? What, what Remind me. Yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, the shorthand version is sort of uh, build, uh, you know, build artificial general intelligence and uh, use it to, um, you know, help everyone. So I guess like, um, it seems like a funny mix of sort of, policy and building like do you think it's important that those two things are um together like like i would i mean i could imagine like should should the people like um like i guess well, how would you argue against this because i think i do think they should go together i'm trying to think like with the other the other point of view but it sort of seems like well like d does does policy and building really necessarily need to be combined like is it even combined in most cases like you know, it sort of feels like the policymakers um, in general, like, aren't always engineers, right? Like, why, why have a thing that, that combines both? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, by default, um, a lot of, you know, people who are building powerful technologies are, like, de facto sort of policymakers and that they're setting, you know, the defaults and the, the, you know, how people think of things and they're, they're sort of influencing what the early applications are and so forth. So I think you can't totally separate them. I think anyone who's sort of involved in technology you know, should be thinking to some extent about, uh, you know, their social impact. And, um, you know, there's also value to, like, division of labor. And that's why, you know, not every single, you know, person at the organization is, like, on the policy team. Like, we have a policy team, and then we have a team, we have you know, various, uh, various different teams. Um, so it makes sense to, like, have some specialization. But I think, you know, the, the reason why we think it's such a high priority is that um, we don't see sort of the impact of AI as reducible exclusively to the design of this technology. 
It's also about, you know, how is it, uh, what sorts of policies are there in, you know, uh, to constrain the use of it? And are there ways of distributing the economic, uh, you know, uh, the economic upsides of it so that it's not, you know, only benefiting, you know, a small number of people. So um, we think that, you know, it's not just a matter of building the technology, but also making sure that it happens, you know, at the right time in the right environment with the right infrastructure. And so that's why we invest a lot in sort of advocating for policy changes that we think will enable, you know, a more, uh, more cooperative, more responsible AI ecosystem. What, of, like, among, like, I, I'm sure you have, like, a group of, like, AI ethicists or, or policymakers that, that you hang out with. I'm, I'm curious, like, in that, in those circles, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, the things that I hear from people that are interested in, in AI, they seem, like, very, like, um, they don't seem very, like, controversial for me. It seems like people want, like, fairness and they want, like, you know, openness and transparency. And these things all seem, um, like really like, you know, sensible, <laughs> wonderful <laughs> things to me. But I guess like, yeah. where, where are there like um, disagreements? Like, are, are there like different like factions you think of, of people like thinking deeply about this topic? There, there definitely are. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd say factions because I try to like, you know, bri- <laughs> sure, sure. Bri- you know, build bridges <laughs> and stuff like that. But there are definitely like differences in emphasis uh, between people who are sort of focused on, you know, immediate uh, ethical concerns around things like bias and surveillance, you know, sort of one end of the spectrum, you know, there are probably multiple spectra, but you know, that's one and one end of one spectrum. And on the other end is people who think, uh, you know, existential risk from, you know, AI systems that are too powerful to, you know, control, or it, unless you've sort of thought really hard about it in advance, then, you know, by default, things can go bad. That's the thing you should focus on and devote 100% of your attention to. Um, so I think, you know, personally, I find myself somewhere in the middle, and, uh, you know, OpenAI as an organization finds itself somewhere in the middle in that we are thinking about both bias and, you know, long-term safety and thinking about present systems and AGI. And um, I think, you know, there, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I don't think... Uh, and I think that in terms of, you know, practice, because ultimately, like, both sides are just trying to, like, figure out how to make sure this uh, technology helps people and doesn't hurt people. Um, and in fact, often, you know, the, the conclusions of, in terms of the actual policies you recommend aren't that different, depending on whether you're focused on the immediate term or the long term. So I, I see it more as sort of a spectrum, but there are definitely people with, you know, different, different emphases. But is that, like, cop out? Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like if the ethics is interesting, it must have, uh-huh. like, um, there must be like controversy, right? Like inside, have there been decisions like internal to open air, or even just sort of like philosophical discussions where like people really take like strong, um, like different stances. Like, you know, cause I feel like when you put it in this general sense, it's like who would argue that we shouldn't make AI safe and who would argue that we shouldn't make AI biased. But the, I, I have a feeling like when you, when you zoom in on like what that really means, there must be points where they come into conflict. Yeah. Yeah, oh, there, there's step. Yeah, and to be clear, um, yeah, you had asked me about factions, so I tried to give you a, a map of oh, the factions. Yeah, yeah, sure, but, sure, sorry. but I think there's also there's also like you know within the factions, and and you know there's also all sorts of debates, and I, yeah, they're not like you know consensus factions. So um, yeah, like I, let's just take like the short term issues. So I think among the people who are focused on um, you know short term issues, I think there's sort of you know a, another sort of spectrum of people you know who are. Uh, you know, on the one end thinking, okay, like we have to figure out how to do this right uh, in, you know, sort of each case and figure out what the right norms are and sort of, you know, they see it being like, you know, both 
intrinsically important and symbolically important to get, you know, issues like bias and so forth sorted out as soon as possible. Um, whereas there's, you know, and so that's sort of the like, you know, it, the like hardcore, like, let's make sure that we're not causing harm. So like maybe the like Hippocratic oath end of the spectrum of like first do no harm and like take uh -huh. stuff like bias super seriously. Then there's, you know, another, uh, you know, there are also lots of people who are, um, you know, building systems that, um, you know, are sort of focused on getting products to market and they're focused on sort of releasing systems that can inform research. And, uh, and in the case of GPT-2, we saw like some of the tension between these perspectives of like, uh, you know, there was potentially a tension between, you know, avoiding uh, causing harm on the one hand and enabling people to understand our research and verify our claims and, and sort of build new systems. And uh, so you could maybe say like Hippocratic, you know, oath end of the spectrum and uh, uh, the like move fast and break things end of the spectrum. And I think there's like an element of, of truth to both of them in that like, you know, be harming people on the one hand and also uh, also like this, uh, this technology needs to be iterated and there needs to be sort of publication and uh, sort of, you know, models getting out there in the world in order for there to be sort of learning by doing and uh, ultimately figuring out how to solve those problems. So um, yeah, definitely, definitely, um, you know, you know, you could say conflicts there. And, um, you know, in the case of GB2, there were definitely a, a bunch of different perspectives internally at OpenAI. And, you know, ultimately, we tried to wrangle that into a, you know, consensus issue. But uh, you can see the like ambiguity and the fact that we were like hedging a lot of our claims, like, you know, we're not sure how dangerous this is. And, you know, we're sort of taking things, you know, one step at a time. That was because, uh, you know, there were actual, you know, different, there were actual, like, different competing values at stake. Like, there was, like, a, you know, there was, you know, I wouldn't say it's, like, totally zero-sum, but there was, like, some zero-sumness between, sort of, like, avoiding potentially causing uh, harm if, if it turned out that GP2 was very dangerous and allowing people to verify that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. When you think about, uh, I mean, I, I think you mentioned that you don't really have a good sense for, like, what all the policies um would need to be to like unlike climate change like what where it's it's pretty maybe more clear what the sensible policies are mm -hmm. are there are there some things that you policies that you would enact if you if you had control or if you could like you know recommend a few things to say like the u.s government like like what would what would those things be yeah so uh some of the some of the stuff that we um flagged in the the tour trustworthy ai development report i would i would definitely consider here so stuff like compute support for academia um, I think generally, uh, like at a super high level, one policy change that I'd like to see is sort of more robust support of academic research. Um, and I, uh, you know, including not just compute, but also things like data and just sort of, you know, funding for uh, academics so that they're not constantly like writing, you know, grant applications and, you know, uh, sort of, uh, I think there are lots of inefficiencies in the way that the American academic system works currently. Um, so like more, you know, long-term funding of, uh, you know, work in areas like safety and security and privacy would be good, sort of more uh, support for working on things like bias. Um, because I, I think what we're, we're currently kind of in a regime where there's a little bit of funding here from, you know, Department of Defense, there's a little bit of funding here from National Science Foundation, and then there's like, you know, everything that industry is doing. Um, and what I'd like to see is, uh, a world in which, you know, an academic, you know, um, or, you know, postdoc or something like that doesn't see a, huge, a, a big trade-off between uh, sort of working in industry versus academia in terms of the resources that they'll have and the amount of freedom that they'll have. Um, because I think we'll see both faster progress in AI and more creativity if people are able to think long-term in, in different sectors and not be sort of constantly uh, fighting over money. Um, but also there are sort of areas that, um, you know, 
by necessity need to be worked on over the long term. So things like safety, for example, you would you want that to be like you know always an option for you know ambitious grad students to work on that. But it's actually not really the case today. A lot of a lot of the time today, like you know, one could go to grad school and not find an easy way to work on AI safety because you know a lot of the grants available are at you know. Department of Defense on X, Y, and Z, or something like that, and yeah, they do fund some safety stuff. But I, I would like to see like more more balancing between the civilian and, and defense side, and also uh, sort of more you know more robust long term uh, funding for that, that makes sense. But is, what about uh, regulation? Would you would you like push for? I mean, besides just like more kind of more funding, would would you um, mm -hmm. would you want? our government to, to enact some like laws now around like putting guardrails around um, like AI research or deployments or would you want them to kind of wait and see until um, there's more information? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the I think my answer is like, yes, they, they should do some stuff now and other areas they should wait and see. So I think uh, in areas like, you know, driverless cars, for example, there's like already a sort of clear you know, reason to act quickly and develop sort of sector specific uh, regulations. I think another area where I'd like to see more progress in developing, uh, you know, clear guidance for, um, you know, sort of entrepreneurs and others is uh, health applications to AI. So um, where there's like some effort to uh, sort of, you know, figure out how AI systems uh, should flow through the FDA, for example, and, you know, what should that review process look like? I think that's an area where uh, it would be beneficial to see um, uh, sort of more investment in uh, capacity and expertise in the government so that they have a better, you know, ability to, to um, sort of process these applications and also just like clearer sort of structures for uh, getting AI systems through a uh, sort of regulatory process like that I think could be very valuable. Um, I don't know exactly, you know, what, what the details of that should look like, but, you know, generally that's something where, you know, we do not want people putting out, you know, sort of health applications that, you know, are causing harm, but we also don't want, you know, we don't want zero health applications of AI. So I think that's that's an area where like some guardrails in order to give people like long-term sort of clarity. So it's not just like a black box of, oh, will my system be able to be deployed in like a year or two, but sort of long-term signals, um, uh, I think would be very valuable. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, we always um, we always end with two questions. I'm curious how you're gonna <laughs> what you'll say about these. So the first one is it's it's kind of kind of broad, but kind of off the top of your head, when you think about um, when you think about all the sort of like topics in in machine learning, what's what's the one that you think people don't talk about enough? Like what's the like the sort of like underrated topic that you'd like to kind of push people to go maybe learn a little more about? I mean, I, I think one one super interesting thing is like uh, detection of um, language model outputs, and I mean, this is sort of partially, uh, you know, me being biased from working on GPT two a lot. But there's actually sure. been like a ton of super interesting uh, research on things like how the sampling strategy relates to detectability and how like model size relates to detectability. Uh, and one area that's like super uncertain is how fine tuning relates to all of this. So, uh, you can imagine a world in which like GPT-2 or uh, other systems are used to generate like homework. And this is just, someone was giving an example of this on Twitter uh, just earlier today that I saw. And, you know, it's like people are using it to cheat or to generate, you know, uh, phishing emails or something like that. I think it's a really interesting question, like what the sort of limiting, uh, limiting case of like detection of language models is. Like, will it just oh, always be like Like who wins that arms race? <laughs> yeah, who wins that arms race? And also yeah. like, are there steps that you can take to, you know, make it more winnable from the, from the <laughs> defender's perspective, like, you know, watermarking or something like that. Um, so I think it's, uh, 
you know, I, I hopefully it's not like a super urgent issue and that hopefully, you know, these, these hopefully there aren't that many people actively trying to, you know, weaponize these systems or whatever, but I think uh, there's been a ton of work by, you know, Google, um, Allen Institute for AI, University of Washington, uh, OpenAI, and elsewhere on trying to, like, push the push the state of the art forward, but we still don't have a, you know, general theory of, of you know, how, how all these things come together. Interesting. Uh, you, what is the state of the art? Is it, like, can you generally detect these models? Yeah, so the state of the art is is, like, around 95%-ish detection of uh, sort of uh, where where uh, it's sort of, you know, a, the, uh, actually, so we use a Roberta model, actually, uh, in order to detect GPT-2. So when we released our sort of, you know, new, newest and best um, uh, system, we're actually using a smaller model to detect the outputs from the larger model. Uh, so that's one of the things is that, like, you know, it isn't one of the early findings from uh, folks at, at the University. University of Washington and Allen Institute was that you know, models can detect themselves and that this was sort of an argument for uh, releasing. We eventually found that like sidestepping and trying a different model architecture than using it to, the, using it to detect the original one sometimes works better. Um, one of the things that, uh, that we found is that it's you know, easier to detect the smaller models, which is maybe not surprising because they're just sort of worse in some respects and they might be making more errors that are uh, sort of catchable. But yeah, that's sort of you know, what, what our initial findings have been. And, but there are other people who have found um, you know, other, other really interesting things like what are, what are humans picking up on versus you know, what sort of AI systems are detecting. Like AI systems can detect weird stuff like distribution of adverbs versus you know, nouns or something and like, oh, therefore it's fake. But humans are not looking for those kinds of things. They're looking for, you know, is it saying something that's like incoherent or is it repeating itself or things like that. So um, we, you know, that, that's one other, another interesting finding is that humans and, you know, machines are complementary in terms of how they uh, detect things. I guess that makes sense. I mean, I, maybe I'm overconfident or out of date, but I feel like I can still detect uh, these models pretty reliably by <laughs> having them by noticing that they make no sense. <laughs> well, yeah, so I guess it depends. Yeah, so I mean, there was a good, there's a good, um, uh, there's a good uh, sort of like game that you can play to detect like fake versus real Trump tweets. And there are a few other sort of like quizzes like that that um, I think are, are worth trying. It's sometimes harder, harder than you might think, at least like in the context of fine tuning. Um, so I guess where, also that the, the, yeah. the Twitter genre is really kind of pushing us to yeah, I could see Twitter being a tough um, medium to, to detect human versus machine, but I feel like yeah. over like a few paragraphs, I think I could do it, but now I want to try. Yeah, the, the over a few paragraphs part is critical because, yeah, that's like one of the, one of the like robust findings that both for humans and machines, it's like easier to get more context and more, uh, you know, long information. Um, so that's potentially like, um, it's actually kind of good in that respect that Twitter, you know, recently went from 140 to 280 characters. Because <laughs> that that's like a sort of sweet spot in uh, in terms of like detectability. It makes it makes it a bit easier. Well, maybe our our, our um, popular culture is nudging us more towards the language of machines than than machines yeah. are learning <laughs> human language. <laughs> um, we'll see. Okay, last 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 question. <laughs> um, well, you, um, so this is um, this is kind of more. I guess this is like a more for practitioners, but I think actually I'd be curious your your take on it. So when you look at things at um, at OpenAI or elsewhere, and you look from like sort of the conception to um, like you know creation and deployment of like a complete model, I guess like where do you see the the bottlenecks happening? Like what's sort of the hardest? 
piece of kind of like getting something done and out the door? Good question. I mean, a lot of, it seems like a lot of it is, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, finding the right hyperparameters and, and uh, you know, the kind of stuff that y'all are, you know, trying to help out with is uh, sort of getting the, getting the right hyperparameters. Um, obviously, like compute is a bottleneck, you know, if you, you know, don't have enough compute, but I'm sort of thinking in the context of OpenAI where you have a decent amount of compute. Um, data is definitely always an uphill battle. Like it's, uh, you know, even if you're, you know, have sort of good engineers who are, you know, good at, um, you know, gathering and cleaning data, it's all, there's always room for improvement. I, so I'd say, I'm, I'm not sure that I call it a bottleneck, but like something to like push on is, you know, the quality of data. Um, yeah, and just like ML, you know, related to the hyperparameter thing is just like ML weirdness. So like, you know, it's just hard, it's hard to debug ML systems and like weird silent failures, which kind of related, you know, can also be weird silent issues in data sets as well. But um, yeah, all, all of those lead to, you know, various weird dynamics. I mean, I do want to say for the record that I think I, I hope that our product um, helps people more with actually the kind of collaboration that you're talking about than like specifically tuning the hyperparameters. So I think like both are, um, you know, important, but I, I'm really curious actually, because like you look at like, say that like we, we watched, um, we watched from the sidelines from far away, opening and trying to build like the, the robot hand and manipulate a Rubik's cube, say. Mm -hmm. And um, just from like casually talking to folks on the team, it seemed like people felt like you were really close and then you know it took like two years but then it actually got done but over like a long period of time and what like what what happens in those in that like year or two like what, what, what from your perspective like what's what's like going on like it can't just be like tweaking hyperparameters can it be yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I should you know, emphasize that I'm not a technical person. So I, I think, yeah, and, and it's not, yeah, not just like, you know, sort of sillily, just sort of tweaking the hyperparameters. But in a way, but like, in a way know, I think you might have like a clearer perspective than someone who's right in there doing it because you're kind of like watching it from the outside. Like, it's not, yeah, yeah I think, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, in the case of robotics, like, I, from my perspective, it, it felt like a fairly sort of smooth trajectory of, like, you know, every few months there would be some kind of, you know, demo that, that seemed a bit more impressive, and it, it wasn't like, you know, it sort of uh, nothing happened for years. It was like, you know, maybe didn't solve the original problem for a while, but um, it, it seems like there's always, you know, sort of, um, you know, some, some area to push on, and um, yeah, I, I think it, you mentioned collaboration. I would say, um, yeah, just like knowing what sort of techniques to apply is like another part of it. So it's not, you know, the hyperparameters per se, but like, you know, knowing how to get, you know, transformers to work in, you know, in some new context, I think is like, you know, non-obvious and, you know, the fact that there's not always, you know, sufficient information and papers to reproduce things sort of requires you to um, do a lot of, you know, sort of trial and error. And that's just sort of, you know, how ML research seems to work is like trying lots of stuff with hyperparameters and architectures and data forth and just take time. Okay, right, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, we'll we'll put some of your the, the papers you mentioned in the um in the show notes. Uh, yeah. That was really fun. I really appreciate it. It's great talking with you.